Take your Bibles and turn to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Keep on fleeing from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Some of you that were around in the 60s will remember Robert Crumb's Mr. Natural, who was uh, a sort of guru and dirty old man who's... uh, whose comments on society enlivened the pages of underground newspapers like the Berkeley Barb. That's where I first uh, ran across Mr. Natural. And I remember one particular segment where uh, uh, the old fellow is talking to a young student who is watching a young woman walk by in a very short miniskirt. And uh, the student says to Mr. Natural, Mr. Natural, is sex the answer? And uh, Mr. Natural says, my boy, sex is the question. Indeed, uh, it was, and it still is. Our sexuality is a, is a great uh, mystery. It's not fully understood. There's a segment in the Proverbs where one of the wise men uses one of these Proverbs of ascending numeration, the three plus four formula that you occasionally see in the in the Proverbs, the point of which is the, the fourth line, the last line is the bottom line, it's the punch line. He says, there are four things I, I, three things I don't understand. There are four things that are miraculous to me. The way of, a, of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship in the sea, those are all environments which have to be negotiated. And in the bottom line, the fourth line is, in the way of a man or the maiden. Here's a man who was uh, exceedingly wise, and yet he did not understand his own sexuality. G.K. Chesterton uh, says that we're like like a shipwrecked mariner who's suffering from amnesia and bits and pieces of the ship uh, from which we escaped as it it breaks up and floats to the beach or being strewn uh, at his feet and the mariner picks up the pieces of his old life and he looks at them and he can't remember what they're for and Chesterton says our sexuality is like that. We just don't, we don't understand it. It's a great great mystery. It's beyond us. We've forgotten the purpose to which our sexuality should be be put. 
Now, this is Paul's concern in this passage. He, he talks about sex. This is one of a number of passages where this uh, issue is, is confronted head on. The Bible, as I've said before, is a very earthy book. It deals directly with issues that concern us, and our sexuality is, is of profound importance to us. As a matter of fact, there is a whole book in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, which is a love poem about lovemaking between a, a husband and, and wife. It's a wonderful poem and uh, explains something of, of the significance of, of sexuality. And that's Paul's concern in this, uh, in this passage. He's going to deal with this, uh, this ticklish uh, but very uh, significant uh, subject. Now, the... Corinthians had a, had a slogan. Everything is lawful. Everything is permissible. Everything is okay. By which they meant sex is good. And uh, interestingly enough, Paul agrees. Paul uh, would say with them that sex is a very good thing. It's part of uh, the created order, which God said from the beginning is, is very good. Uh, it's God who created sex, not uh, Madonna. Uh, my, I wish we could get that one back from uh, from the world. You know, we read her hardcore porn book, Sex, which Vanity Fair described as the dirtiest coffee table book ever published, and we think we know all about sex. That's that's the world's approach to this uh, this subject. But we're left uh, like the Rolling Stones. We can't get no satisfaction. We we uh, can't understand it. And uh, what Paul is going to do in this passage is, is explain to us what our bodies are for and the purpose for uh, sexual, uh, uh, sexual expression. Now, uh, what Paul does is to say, yes, you're right, everything is lawful. It's, it's really difficult to think of anything that in and of itself is sinful and wrong. But not all things are good, he's saying. Not all, th- all things are permissible. You have the power to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, here's what Paul is saying. If we do not learn to put sex to its intended purpose, it will control us. Actually, he, he plays on the word for power. He says, I have the power to do everything, but uh, I will not be overpowered. By anything, And what he's saying is that if we don't put sex to its intended purpose, if we don't sanctify it, to use the biblical expression, it will dominate us. It will control us. Paul says in another place, everything is good. Now, isn't that interesting? Everything is good. As I say, it's hard to think of anything that in and of itself is wrong. It's that we take good things and turn them to wrongful purposes. But Paul says, everything is good if it is put to its intended purpose by the word of God in prayer. So uh, the question is, what does the word of God have to say about sexual expression and about our sexuality? What does sex mean? How is it to be sanctified? How is it to be put to its uh, God-intended purpose? Well, uh, uh, Paul, uh, if he had time, would take us back to the book of Genesis because that's where the subject of sex is first disclosed and discussed. Chapter 1 of Genesis talks about the two sexes. God made the human race male and, and female. 
and they're equal before God. Chapter 1 stresses the equality of the sexes. Both are made in the image of God. Women are not subsets of men. They, they, are, uh, they, they, they bear a very close resemblance to God, as do men. In fact, they're more like God than any other part of, of, his, uh, of his creation. And uh, the two sexes there are uh, described as equal. And then in chapter 2, the two sexes are differentiated. Uh, there are really only two sexes in the world. Uh, when I used to speak on this subject to uh, college students, I would sometimes ask them, how many of you are sexual? And there would be kind of a moment of uneasiness, and then they would think about it a little bit, and a few hands would go up. And, of course, the facts are we're all sexual. You're either male or female. There's no third thing out there. You know, you may, you may be uncertain what you are, but, but you would have to say you're one or the other. You're either male or female. Well, those, those are the differentiations that God made in the human race. He took an undifferentiated, an undifferentiated man, Adam, and he, and he made two out of him, two different sexes. Now, this happened because the man was alone. God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's very significant because throughout the opening chapters of Genesis, God creates and he says it's good, and he creates and he says it's good, and then he creates and he says this is not, this is not good. And uh, what was not good was man's loneliness. Man was made to live in community. He was made for intimacy. And so God said I'll make a helper uh, who is like him, who approximates uh, him. That word helper is a very strong word. It's used 80 times in the Bible for God himself, who is our help. It's found in a combination with, in certain names like Azariah. Yah is, Yahweh is our, is our helper. It's a military term that's, that's used on occasion for strong help that's, uh, that's sought in time of, of deep need. Uh, Adam didn't need a gopher. That's not the point of the word helper. What he needed was a companion who would reign with him and share his, his responsibility for ruling over, over the world. And, and so God uh, brought all the animals out, and Adam began to name the, Adams, name the animals, giving them names that corresponded to him. And there wasn't any helper there for him. No one corresponded to him exactly, so God put him into a deep sleep. Uh, coma, actually, is the word that's used. He was unconscious. And uh, from the man, he made a woman. Not, not from his rib, but from his side. He differentiated. Uh, he, he made two, a male and, and female. And when Adam awoke from that sleep and he saw this, this wonderful creature that God had given to him, he, he fair flew into a frenzy. He began to Wax poetic, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman because she was made out of man. He plays on the word for man. He just feminizes uh, his name, Ish, man. This is woman. And Moses says, for this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave mother and father. It's a social contract that's made. He, he leaves this first set of allegiances that he has, this loyalty to his parents he separates from his, from his family, and, and another relationship is formed. He cleaves to his wife. It's a very strong word in Hebrew. It means to stick to, to be glued to, and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage, you see. God instituted marriage as a way of assuaging Adam's loneliness. He leaves mother and father. He cleaves to his wife. 
and they begin to enjoy sexual activity in that relationship. That's what the phrase, uh, they become one flesh, means. It's, a, it's, a, it's an idiom, it's a euphemism for lovemaking. And, uh, and, and Moses says they were, they were naked and they were unashamed. It was all right, sex was okay. See? There was no shame attached to the act and because it was contained in that, in that relationship. It's what it's for. It's a way of expressing love and intimacy as well as, 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 pro, as, to pro, as a way of procreating the, the race. It's good. It's God-ordained. It's God's gift to the human race, but it only finds its, its ultimate meaning and significance within, within the containment of marriage, you see. And, and when we step outside of that sheltered place, when we use sex outside of its ordained purpose, it becomes... Uh, a very frustrating sort of sort of thing. And that's true of all of life. Whenever we step out of God's created order, we, we just make ourselves miserable. But as long as we enjoy this gift in its God-ordained place, then it's, it's satisfying. What Moses is saying in Genesis 2 is that it's God's intention that one man and one woman stick together for life and enjoy the gift of sex within that relationship. That's what it's for. That's where its mystery is uncovered. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems, that, that couples don't have problems with their sexuality. Paul's going to address that issue in 1 Corinthians 7. But he's saying that, it, that, that the, the way God structured things is that's where we find our... Uh, that's where we find its significance. And when we step outside of that order, things begin to go awry. We don't get any satisfaction. That's why adultery doesn't satisfy. That's why fornication doesn't satisfy. That is just casual encounters. As George MacDonald says, there comes a mist and a weeping rain, and life is never the same again. Oh, there's a rush, you know, kind of a sense of excitement and thrill. But then there sets in that dullness and deadness that, that makes us empty. And, and we do feel wasted. We do feel ruined. And, and that's why sex outside of marriage becomes so addictive. Because we keep wanting to go back to that original sensation, the rush. And we can't find it anymore. And so we have to titillate ourselves with more exciting forms of sexual activity and more deviant forms of sexual activity. And it just empties us out of, uh, of, our, of our soul. No wonder Mick Jagger could say, I, I can't get no satisfaction. There is no satisfaction apart from sex enjoyed in its God-ordained place. Now, do you understand what Paul is saying? Everything is permissible. I have the power to use my body any way I want to, but, but it's not beneficial. It's not beneficial. I'll not be overpowered by anything. What I will do is put sex in its proper place so that it can be enjoyed, or I can control it instead of it controlling uh, me. Now, the Corinthians had another slogan, uh, verse 13, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, by which they meant nature demands satisfaction. Uh, the stomach's made for food. That's what it's for. It's a receptacle for food. You put food into it, it's not hungry anymore. But they were extrapolating from that that uh, the body is made to be satisfied. You have a Mac attack and you go down and buy a burger. Uh, you're sexually aroused and so you... you you find someone to satisfy that, that arousal. You, you have the urge, and so you merge. It's natural, he's saying. 
The, the body just demands satisfaction. But Paul says, no, no, that's, that's what in logic would be called a categorical error. You're, you're uh, comparing apples and oranges. The two categories don't, uh, aren't proximate. He says, look, it's true that the stomach is for food, and food is made for the stomach. That's God's ordained purpose. But that's a temporary function that's going to be done away with. The body is not made for sexual immorality. Now, he doesn't say the body is not made for sex. That wouldn't be true. God did make our bodies with, with our sexuality in mind to be enjoyed in marriage, to be freely and fully enjoyed in marriage. It's not what he's saying. He's just saying the body is not made to be satisfied, satisfied at whim. It's all right to get hungry and feed yourself. It's not all right to have a sexual need and run out and satisfy it in illicit ways. That's, that's not what the body is for. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is, is for the body. Now that is a staggering notion. God is for your body, and your body is for the Lord. You have to realize what a bombshell that was in the, in the Roman world of Paul's time, because they were deeply influenced by Greek thought, and the Greeks considered the body as uh, just a container for the soul, or worse, the body was bad. As Plato said, the body is the prison house of the soul. And what mattered is the mind, or, or more properly, what you put your mind on, the ideals. That the body is just, just, just junk, it's trash, it's of no use. And uh, they went one of two directions, either uh, the direction that, that we go uh, in modern, in contemporary society. You, know, you only go around once, so you've got to go for the gusto. Those were the Epicureans. Didn't matter what you did to your to your body because the body didn't matter, or they disciplined it and they tried to restrain it and keep it under control. Those were the Stoics. But in either case, you know, drunk or monk, it didn't make any difference. Uh, the body was bad, and and you just tried to ignore it and get on with life and concentrate on the things that that really mattered. And and Paul says, no, no, you you've got it all wrong. God is for your body, and your body is for the Lord. Christianity is the most materialistic religion in the world in that it takes your bodies very seriously. As a matter of fact, Paul says not only is God for your body and your body for God now, but he says God's going to raise us up. In other words, he has an eternal purpose for your body. You'll always have a body, a body now, a glorified body later. And he says, I, I just want you to know that God, God loves your body just the way it is. Tall, dark, handsome, short, shot, shapeless. Don't make any difference. The, the older I get, the, you know, the, the, the more meaningful that, that becomes. God. <laughs> I, I, I agree with uh, uh, St. Francis. Who, he referred to his, his body as brother ass, brother donkey. Uh, awkward and uh, absurd, but serviceable. And, uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that, that's what begins to happen to our, our bodies after a while. You know, we try to keep them in shape, and, and there's some value in, in eating right and exercising and keeping our body functioning as long as we can. But the older you get, the you know, fewer parts work, and those that do work don't work very well, and, and we begin to despise our bodies. But I, I just want to tell you, God loves your body just the way it is, all wrinkled and... and uh, He's, he's not, you know, somehow we, we've gotten off on this idea that, uh, that God put
puts a premium on how we look. You know, we've got to we've got to stand tall. We've got to look sharp. We've got to be a firm believer. Uh, you know, we 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 got to be trim for him. Uh, you know, and there's and there's nothing wrong with trying to take care of our bodies. God didn't put a premium on trashing your body either, but. But at the same time, we've got to have some balance and perspective in this, that what really matters is that God loves our bodies just like they are. He made us the way we are. You can look in the mirror, as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, and say, ooh, that is beautiful. That is magnificent, you know, because that's the way God made us. And what really matters is not what we do with our bodies, but what God is doing in our bodies. You see, our bodies are made for the Lord. You understand that? Your body is a gift given to you through which you can make visible the invisible Christ. Hebrews says that when, uh, when, when the Lord uh, became flesh, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire. He was quoting Psalm 40. But a body you have designed, you have created for me. See? Uh, our Lord came in the flesh. God prepared a body for him to, to make visible the invisible God, and that's what your body is for. Your body is not a plaything primarily, although God takes great, you know, he, he, he gives us uh, uh, things to do with our bodies that are joyful and exciting and, and fun, but, but the main purpose for your body is to make visible the invisible Lord who indwells you. See? That's what your body's for. And uh, Paul says, as a matter of fact, that's why you don't want to take that body and, and use it in some illicit way because your body belongs, belongs to the Lord. He said, shall I, uh, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? It's though our hands are our Lord's hands and our feet are his feet and our tongue is his tongue. Every part of our body is simply an expression of, of who he is and what he uh, wants to do in this world. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one. Here he's quoting Genesis 2, passage that I referred to earlier. But he who unites himself with the Lord is, is one with him in, in spirit. So what he says in effect is that we prostitute our bodies when we use them for illicit purposes. It's a sellout, he says. No, he says, just give your body to God and let him fill you and flood you and use your hands and your eyes and your, your, your tongue, every part of your body, uh, to, make him, uh, to make him known. That's why he said in verse 18, we, we have to flee from sexual immorality. We, like the Corinthians, live in a sex-saturated society. And I think that's one of the uh, chief ploys that the evil one used. Uses to get us to prostitute our bodies. On every side, we're told uh, what to do with our bodies and how to utilize them, all for purposes uh, which God never intended for us. The world out there, that part of creation that will not be ordered by God's God's law, sees no use in making your your body available to God. They want you to use it in other ways, and those messages come at us day after day after day. And uh, we have to learn to, like Joseph did, who left the empty sleeve uh, to Potiphar's, uh, in Potiphar's hand, you know, just, just flee, just run away from sexual immorality. 
some uh, substances are so toxic you can't even sniff them. You know? and, and so what Paul says is just keep on running away. Keep on fleeing away. Uh, and for myself, I think the flight really begins in our minds. Uh, Martin Luther said, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Uh, that's never been a, a real problem for me, but <laughs> some I know struggle with that. But what, what Luther was saying is you can't help the thoughts. You can't, you know, you flip on the TV and you see all sorts of uh, uh, things that elicit a, a sexual response. You can't help that sort of thing, but you can keep setting up in your mind. Because what we think determines what we do. Our predominant thought determines our immediate action, as, as someone has said, or as Jesus put it, as a, as a man or woman thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you, you, you've committed the act. Now, he wasn't making things more difficult for his disciples. He was telling them how to deal with the actions. He was saying the thoughts determine the actions, you see. The, the reason people commit adultery is because it starts in the mind and eventually moves down in, into the actions. So he says, look, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, he's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about self-denial. Deal with the inputs, the things that cause the thoughts that trigger the actions. It means we need to be tough on ourselves with what we watch, the movies that we go to see, the videos that we check out, the books that, that we read. We, we have to be fairly stern with ourselves. Pluck out our eye, is, is the way Jesus put it. And uh, we need to, to deal with the sense of touch, you know, the hugging, the embracing, the touching, the things that, that create the arousals that, that get us into trouble. It says you just have to be tough with, with yourself. You have to stay out of situations where it's easy to, to fall into immorality. Uh, as Paul puts it in another place, uh, we, we, we have to make no provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in situations where it's easy for you to take that, that next step. And uh, in that mean, by that means, we, we, we can keep fleeing away from the sin that so easily besets us and which can derail us completely from fulfilling God's intention for us. I really do believe, Paul goes on to say that every other sin is a sin outside your body, but, but sexual sins are uniquely sins against the body. Now, in what sense is that true? Well, they, they cause us to misuse the purpose that God has in mind for our bodies. There's something about impurity, sexual impurity, that frustrates God's efforts to use us. Now, all of us struggle with it on the level of fantasy, if in no other level. But, but what Paul and our Lord is saying is that if we want to be uh, the kind of instrument that God can use, if we want to see God in all of his purity, then we have to be pure in heart. We have to learn to deal with the sexual issues that are frustrating God's uh, purposes that he has in mind uh, uh, for us. Now, <clears throat> Paul goes on to use another uh, another. Uh, Metaphor, he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have, whom you have received from God? 
You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Two things I'd like to, to say about that, those two verses. The first is that God sees our body as a temple. And actually, the word he uses here is the word for the holy place, the inner sanctuary, the inner sanctum of the temple. In, in, in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle, there was a little room in the very interior of, of, the, uh, of the temple or tabernacle that housed the ark that represented the presence of God. And it's that term, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, that Paul uses here. And, and what Paul says is that you need to understand that your body is a holy place. Your body is a holy place. It contains God. Now, if you get that clear, that'll keep you out of the back seat of, of cars. It'll keep you out of people's apartments. It will help you greatly in, in resisting temptation to understand that God himself indwells you, that you've received the greatest gift that God can give, and that's the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling your your human spirit, and that makes you very special, and that makes your body a sanctuary, a holy place. Furthermore, Paul says, that that gift was purchased at an enormous price. It was purchased at the price of God's own blood. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. That is, make your body available to him. Just say, here, here I am, hands, feet, mind, Every part of my body, I want you to have me. I want you to fill me and flood me and, and use me in, in whatever way you, you see fit. You see, that's putting your body to God's intended purpose. Uh, some of you know my friend Brian Morgan. He's been here several times to speak to us. And When he was a student uh, in high school, he was touted as one of the as one of the uh, top five gymnasts in the United States, he came to Stanford on a full uh, full ride scholarship. They expected him to go to the Olympics, but he was one of these uh, athletes that uh, develops very early, and and he actually got no better than he was in high school. And as he got uh, uh, older and he gained weight, he got worse. And uh, in his junior year, he was then the captain of the of the uh, gymnastics team at Stanford. Uh, he fell off the high bar, and he, and he made the lowest uh, score that's ever been made in an NCAA meet. And he came into my office shortly after that, and he said, you know, he said, I'd always read this passage as though Paul was saying, glorify God with your body. And I envisioned myself standing on the, the center uh, uh, podium in the Olympics and uh, having that gold uh, chain that gold uh, medallion placed around my neck, and then being able to say, see what God has done with my body. And now I realize that I've, I have misread that passage. It does not say glorify God with your body. It says glorify God in your body. And what matters most is not what we do. It's what we are. It's, it's the manifestation of God's life in our bodies that matters. And may I say, too, just as a, as a side note here, I believe that one, one way of helping us with our sexual urges is, is this, it comes through giving ourselves to God. I've said before that our sexuality and, and sanctity are very closely related. One is a mirror of the other. 
And I think a lot of our, uh, our urgency and our sexual urgencies is really a longing after God that we have. And when we give ourselves to him and we devote ourselves to love uh, in love to him, it takes a little bit of the edge off of our sexual, uh, sexual urges. Not that it completely put, takes them away. You know, they'll be there to the end of our days. But it's a little easier to face the temptations and the struggles when the longings of our heart are being satisfied by, by God himself. And so that's what uh, Paul would urge you to do is just uh, give, your, give your body to him. As, as he puts it in Romans 12, I beseech you, I appeal to you, based upon the mercies of God, because of what he's done for you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. The, uh, the most profound act of worship that any of us can ever enter into is to give God our, our bodies. And you say, well, why in the world would he want my body? It's lazy. It's self-indulgent. It has a dirty mind. It has a sexually transmitted disease. Why would God want my body? Well, he does. He does. He just wants you to come with all of your limitations and, and all of your weaknesses, weaknesses, all of your failings, and say, God, here I am. I want you to fill me and flood me and put me to your intended purpose. Some of you, know, I know, are looking back on this past week and you're thinking about moral failures. I'm sure that some of you, perhaps many of you, have failed morally. This, this past week through overt sexual acts or through, uh, through sexual fantasies that have uh, defiled uh, God's uh, dwelling place, and you're, you're aware of that and struggling with that. Well, I just want you to know what Paul said to the Corinthians who, who struggle with the same thing. They, they lived in a society where they were faced with sexual temptation on every side. And Paul says to them, I, I want to present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. Isn't that wonderful? That, that's the way you can look at yourself in Christ. If you repent of that sin and you put it away and, and you ask God to begin the healing process and you accept that wonderful forgiveness from him, he looks at you as a chaste virgin. I read this past week that back in 1920, Cumberland University played Georgia Tech in a football game and they lost... 222 to nothing. That, that's the highest score that anybody has ever run up on another football team. 222 to nothing. And they dropped their football program <laughs> until last year. And they reinstated it. And I thought, that's wonderful. They're suiting up again. And I would like to say to you that if you have lost this last week 222 to nothing, you can suit up again. You can get back into the game because you're forgiven. Remember that, uh, that woman that was dragged out into the crowd all rumpled and disheveled who'd been caught in bed with a, with a married man, or perhaps she was married. She was committing adultery. They'd actually caught her in the act. And she was dragged out in front of the Lord, and, and uh, there were a number of men that were accusing her. And Jesus said to them, He who is without sin cast the first stone. He's not saying that, that, it, that it's, 
it would be improper to judge what she was doing as wrong. It's just that we shouldn't throw stones. We shouldn't judge in a way that's damning and condemning and hurtful. And uh, that's what they were doing. They were saying, we, we should stone her. What, what do you think we should do? They were trying to get him at odds with the rest of the people. And, and the Lord made that statement. He who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all left. And, and the one who was without sin said to her, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone, Lord. And he said, neither do I accuse her. She acknowledged his lordship. And he extended to her forgiveness. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. He, he acknowledged that what she had done was sin. But she went away from that place forgiven. And I want you to know that. that you can walk out of this place a chaste virgin in Christ's eyes. All you have to do is to let him know that what you did was sin. Put away that sin, accept his forgiveness, and once again make your body available to him, and he will begin to put you to his intended use. Let's pray. Father, how easily and how often we deviate from your plan. We, we would like to be able to say that our, our bodies are yours permanently, but we, we struggle. We, we must acknowledge that. And we live in a world where it's so easy to be seduced mentally, if not physically. So easy to buy into the enemy's idea that we'll never find satisfaction unless we satisfy ourselves uh, in some illicit sexual activity. We ask that you would, that we believe what you tell us, that you can satisfy us with yourself. We ask that we would believe what you tell us about our guilt, that it is forgotten and forgiven and put away, and that we can begin every moment as a new creation, sanctified, purified, justified, declared just as right as your Son. And uh, we want you to have our bodies this morning. We, we want you to, to use us in every way you see fit. Use every part of us. Put every, every member of our body to your intended purpose. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.